Welcome back to the Utah Shakespeare Festival's Play On Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Hans. Today we have the privilege of speaking with a talented trio of actors from this season. Michael Doherty, Aaron Galligan-Sturl, and Eric Wyman. Michael is playing Tranio in The Taming of the Shrew and Lord Fancourt Baberly in Charlie's Aunt. This is Michael's first season at the festival. He's performed with other theater companies, including Milwaukee Repertory Theater, Arden Theater Company, Wilma Theater, People's Light and Theater Company, 1812 Productions, and many more. He's also performed off-Broadway in Dublin by Lamplight at both the 59E59 Theaters and Inish Nua Theater Company. Aaron Galligan-Sturl is playing Grumio in The Taming of the Shrew and Luther Billis in South Pacific. Aaron is in his seventh season at the festival, with favorite roles including Lancelot Gobbo in The Merchant of Venice, Evelyn Oakley in Anything Goes, Smee in Peter and the Starcatcher, and last season's Festi in Twelfth Night, and Dromeo of Syracuse in The Comedy of Errors. Aaron has also performed on Broadway as Monsieur André in The Phantom of the Opera, Henry Ford in Ragtime, and Papa Who in Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Eric Wyman's roles this season include Biandello in The Taming of the Shrew, Thomas of Clarence in Henry IV Part II, and a soldier in King Lear. This is Eric's second season at the festival. Last year, he played Fabian in Twelfth Night and was in the ensemble of the Comedy of Errors. He also played Malcolm and the Porter in Macbeth for the festival's 2015 Shakespeare in the Schools education tour. He has performed at Nebraska Shakespeare, the Southern Theater, the Children's Theater Company, and the Guthrie Theater. Hi guys, it's great to have you here today. I wonder if you can just start off and introduce yourselves to us. Tell us who you are and uh, and maybe what you're doing here at the festival this season. I'll start. My name's Eric Wyman, and I'm playing twelve different people this summer at the <laughs> festival. I'm playing twelve human beings. In the one man, twelve angry men. <laughs> in, the, in the one man show, twelve angry men. <laughs> yeah, all of your characters are angry. What's that about? Uh, no, I, I don't have a great range as an actor. <laughs> uh, I'm Aaron Galligan Sturl, and uh, this season I'm playing uh, Grumio in Shrew, and I'm playing uh, Luther Billis in South Pacific. I'm Michael Darty. I'm playing Tranio in Taming of the Shrew and Fanny Babs in Charlie's Aunt. So Eric and Aaron, you've been here at the festival before, and Mike, this is your first Newbie, season here. Yeah. Um, what brought you to the festival originally, whether it's this season or many years ago? I mean, this is one of the big North American theater festivals. Frankly, I uh, sent in an audition tape two years ago, at seven in the morning. I filmed it at seven in the morning. When you do your best work. When I do my best work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I destroyed the TV studio I was in while filming it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and I didn't really think about it. I thought, oh, it's an audition tape for, you know, Tony Award winning theater. Never gonna happen. Uh, and then it happened. Uh, and then I kind of came here and found a second home fell in love with this place. I started here um, uh, 11 years ago, which wow. is insane. Um, when and you were 12 years when I old. Was, yes, I was less than that. I wasn't even 12. <laughs> I was six. Um, and uh, I, would, I, just, I was in grad school at the time, and uh, we all drove up to New York City as a, as a class and auditioned. 
as a group for Utah Shakes. And uh, I didn't really also, sort of same thing, I just kind of let it roll off my back and went, well, it's Utah Shakes and I'm in grad school. And my, you know, my, a lot of my focus up until that point had been in musicals. So I wasn't really thinking that I had much of a shot. And amazingly, that first season, just by coincidence, uh, I think it's the only, I believe, it's the only season in the history of Utah Shakes where they did two musicals in the summer. And they cast me in both. So I came out and did uh, My Fair Lady and I did Forever Plaid. And I understudied all of these, like, I think I understudied something like six tracks in Henry IV. (laughs) Um, and then I understudied one of the leads in uh, My Fair Lady. And as it worked out, you know, I mean, I, I, was, I was a lead in Forever Plaid because there's only four of us. And I was a spear carrier in, in My Fair Lady. And as it worked out, uh, that summer, our, um, the gentleman who was playing uh, Pickering, who I was understudying, uh, got very ill. And I ended up going on for two weeks in that role. And I got to kind of show my chops. And... Um, here I am uh, seven seasons later and uh, over a span of 11 years. So it's been a, an amazing run. And just like Eric was saying, it really, it is my artistic home. It's the place that I think of as where I got my start, where I learned my craft. I mean, I've been doing theater my whole life, but this was the place where I got to work with people that were so much better than me and get to watch and figure out what they're doing and how do you do that. And this is the, you know, I got to do, start doing Shakespeare, which I hadn't really done professionally before that. And next thing you know, it's like, you know, now I'm back here as an equity actor and playing roles, and it's, it's a real artistic circle for me. It's thrilling, thrilling to be here. That's awesome. Um, I was working out at Milwaukee Rep, and our sound designer, Barry Funderburg, works here every summer. And uh, he said that he shoot me. He shot me a Facebook message and said that he threw my name in the hat for Fanny Babs in Charlie's Aunt to David Ivers. And uh, he he's like, it's this crazy long contract. Check it out. I'm like, ah, I got a gig in DC. I can't. And then I looked up Utah Shakespeare Festival, <laughs> and I was like, oh, what was that email again? And, and I sent in an audition tape to David, uh, and he sort of took a look at it, and he was like, yeah, I'll take a leap of faith here. Let's do this if you want to do it. I'm like, cool, man. So then suddenly I was sort of just thrust into it, and it's been a really exciting experience. But it was a it was a hell of an audition tape. I saw your audition tape because at the time I, I'm assistant directing uh, Charlie's Aunt this year with David, and David like insta forwarded it me to, to me and was like, "I think this is the guy. What do you think?" And I was like, "Yes, this is the guy." I mean, it was <laughs> like it was amazing. a no brainer because it was a great audition tape. That's amazing. So and those are hard to do. Let me tell you. It's very hard to, especially at seven in the morning. So the fact that Eric pulled one off is also rather impressive. Well, great to have you all here. I think most of what we'll talk about today will be about Taming the Shrew and about sort of comedic acting in general. But But I'd be curious to start by asking you all how you got your start as actors. What made you know that this was the thing you wanted to do? Well, I was one of those crazy kids who, um, from literally the age of four or five, would walk up to every single person I met and said, Hi, I'm Aaron. Can I put on a show for you? And like, I would put on costumes and know every line to Wizard of Oz and play all the characters. And then I'd get all my friends together and I'd direct them and be like, No, no, no. This is how you do it. And I'd like put on these shows. I mean, I was just a crazy theater 
freak from day one. And for some reason, I don't know how I got that bug, but I've never thought I would do anything else. I'm just the guy who like literally from the time I was four, I was, I'm going to be a professional actor. I'm going to work in the theater. This is what I'm going to do. Hmm. I know that's weird, but that's me. I, I kind of started young too, but I wasn't really serious about it. Like it was just something to do. And then I was, um, I kind of played, I was like the woods in Into the Woods. <laughs> <laughs> title <laughs> character. Uh, title character. <laughs> I would love to see that. Me too. That, could you perform it for us right here? I mean. This... Yes, I probably could. Uh, I did. I, I was the woods in Into the Woods on the Disney World Tomorrowland stage. Yes, for, you were. Yeah. Yes, yeah, you so were. That's a big, I should put that on my resume. You should. Uh, <laughs> Um, so I had done like a bunch of that kind of stuff, uh, in school. And then my junior year of high school, I got cast as the moon in this, uh, production, uh, uh, by this, um, one, like my mentor. Um, that's an upgrade yeah. from the woods to the moon, to the moon. <laughs> one day I'll play a human being. <laughs> nah. 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 And, and I, I was dressed in this all-white unitard. Uh, <laughs> yes, and you I were. had this balloon, and he just kind of let me go. He just kind of, he kind of let me go and just, like, improv. And he, he's he's a clown. He's um, based in, like, Lecoq, uh, French clowning. And so he kind of introduced me to that, and it kind of blew up my mind about, like, wait a minute. I can literally just be an idiot, and people watch me do it? Like, people will watch me, and maybe one or two people will laugh at me being an idiot. This is great. Um, and it so kind of just opened my mind to idiocy and being stupid and getting stupider and stupider. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and I love it. I, I, I could, if I, if I could just be stupid on stage for the rest of my life, I'd be nothing but happy. I think you've accomplished that. Yeah. I, yeah. So, far, <laughs> so, so far, so good. Yeah. It's going well. Uh, in the best yeah. possible way. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's funny that you you say like you you found that teacher who who let you go, who like who like let you do your thing, and that's how you sort of found it. Uh, I would because I was always sort of that awkward kid, you know. Still am to this day. Uh, and and uh, you know, I I always loved the idea of performing, but it wasn't until I was nine. I was always that kid who like sung behind his music book in music class, but sang really loud, but so that no one could hear me. You know, and, like I always wanted to. And then our third grade music teacher, Doctor Horvey, yeah, wheels her little music cart over and says that she's gonna do an only third grade production of Pinocchio. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, this is a sign from God. And, uh, and we had auditions and we all auditioned in front of each other and I found that I could make people laugh by saying these words in a goofy way. Not unlike my performance in Charlie's Time. <laughs> Very few differences between Pinocchio and... Yeah, I can and, see it. I can see the inspiration. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and you know, I was, I've been a laugh whore ever since, you know, I, I, like that, that, that sort of feeling was like, ju I didn't know I could feel that way. And yeah. it made me feel so validated yeah. and so loved. And what a great way to describe all three of us. Yeah. Laugh whores. Yeah. That's yeah. good. That's a kind of a good description for this, this trip. Did you plan that? <laughs> three of us together for that reason? That, that should well, be the tagline of this episode. I think so. That's the title of this episode, I believe. Yeah, that's good. 
if there was any doubt about why you were cast as Tranio, Biandello, and Grumio in Taming the Shrew, you can all be put to rest right now. There we now. go. There was more serious dramatic chops <laughs> or use of text. Fish <laughs> text. So let's talk about Shrew and let's talk about the characters that you play in Taming the Shrew. Um, and maybe first, if, if one or two or all three of you want to just talk a little bit about this production and its approach to and, and kind of conception of what the world of this play is to introduce listeners to that. And then if each of you would like to talk about your character a little bit and maybe how you've approached the character, if you've had experience with Taming of the Shrew before, would just kind of love to hear your reflections on all of that. Well, I think I can speak for all of us when I say that all of us have approached this to find as many laughs as possible. I mean, uh-huh. you know, I think that we're trying our best to, to create a, a positive, memorable, comedic thing. Like, you know, hearkening back to us all being uh, laugh whores. I mean, that's sort of that's sort of why you bring us into the room. I mean, we obviously we also want to respect the text and mm-hmm. support our fellow actors who are sometimes not on that track in terms of what their characters need to do. I mean, that's one of the things I think that's interesting about Grumio is that while that's the character I'm playing, which is that he has these moments where he can kind of get let loose and do his thing. And there's a bunch of moments in my, in my show where I feel like my job is to sort of support Petruchio's journey, mm-hmm. um, who has comic comedy in it also, but sort of has a more romantic bent to it that has to sort of happen and have a little bit of a more uh, thoughtful uh, approach. So some, some of what I'm doing is trying to negotiate that. And, and luckily, I mean, I'm, I'm couldn't be more blessed that I'm on stage with Brian Vaughn, who is, you know, when we started this podcast, I was talking about how, when I started here, I got to be around some of the best actors of my, of my life. And, and he's one of those that um, I've been very, very lucky over my seven seasons here to, to, perform with him almost every season oh, wow. um and we kind of keep getting paired together i don't know what that's about but i'm i'm couldn't be more blessed to get to spend the time on stage with him and working with him and working off of him and figuring out what he needs and what i need and and that collaboration has been really particularly thrilling for me so that's that's one aspect of what's going on i think yeah i'd say uh um it's a production where the romance has been kind of really highlighted. I've seen really nasty productions of Taming of the Shrew, where the world is just vicious. And this is a a more romantic, a more... Meeting of equals, maybe? Yeah, meeting of equals uh, kind of world, a, a, a little less violent, a little less aggressive. A little more jovial. A little more jovial, yeah. It's a, it's a jovial production of this play. Um... And so I think, I think our job, well, I, I can only speak for me, but kind, kind of on uh, Aaron's point, I guess, is um, it's our job to not distract from that, but still keep it buoyant, still keep it kind of, you know, get, get, get some laughs in there where we can, get some, uh, you know, little comedic gestures and bits where we can, um, just so you, you, you are reminded that there are still uh, fools in this world. Um, and so I think that that's been something I've been focusing on is trying trying not to, because dis- I 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Trying not to distract from <laughs> the yeah. story. I think that's all of our constant yeah. uh, right. journey, isn't battle. it? Isn't it? Must not open my mouth. Must not open my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Keep both feet on the ground. Just walk forward. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, it's true. Um, so, so I, I think that's been my. Um, I mean, B and Dell is not a, not a huge character, um, but I he's in there for a reason. You gotta um, with with all these servants, with all these um, they they exist in this world. Uh, and and he's he didn't just put him in there just to put him in there to to have bodies on stage. They exist. So why do they exist? Why are they in there? Why is Biondello in there? I think that's been we've been figuring that out. Uh, all three of us. What? Why? You know? Why does Grumio open Act Two for for five yep. five ten minutes? You know? Absolutely. There's a reason for it. Yep. Absolutely. So you gotta. Yeah. Figure that out. Yeah, I have been learning a lot because this is my first Shakespeareance uh, professionally. This is the first time I've done it, and uh, one thing that I've noticed already is that it's a lot more like a sporting event than most other kinds of plays you do. You know, it's like getting the audience to root for you, like genuinely, and being like, "Hey, see this through. I'm gonna dress up as so and so," and this guy over here is like, "I want to foil him." You know, and it's like it's like getting it's all about the competition you know yeah and it's really fun to be with an audience who's actually tracking that through and um tranio is such a uh an anomaly in the servant world <laughs> because he pretends to be his master for so much of the play uh but then that's also part with of his the... master's knowledge and complicity right too, and, which yeah is... and consent yeah. yeah so so it's like he's got this golden ticket and he just enjoys that so much uh and getting the audience to enjoy it with you, you know? Mm -hmm. And then he gets his own servant in Biondello, yeah. uh, which is also a, a whole thing. And, um, <laughs> and I don't know, it's been, it's been cool to, to see what that relationship is and how that develops. Mm -hmm. And like this guy who, who Tranio doesn't have the time of day for at the top of the play, yeah. he, he sort of like has to, he really needs him at a certain point And they sort of, yeah, it's that, it's that friend who like, you don't really want to yeah. hang out with, but they, <laughs> but they have the car. So yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> And then at the end, you're like, hey, Jerry actually has some good thoughts sometimes. <laughs> I, one of the things that continues to impress me in watching in watching this show, and as we're recording this, we've just finished our dress rehearsals and are about to have our first preview audience. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's always impressive to me about the work that each of you is doing in this show is you're very, very funny, and there's all sorts of comedic humor that's done physically, but so much of it is driven by the text as well. And that seems to to be such an integral part of what you're doing. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you use the text to create the comedic inspirations for your characters. Well, the thing that I would say is that the text is our guide for story. The way I approach it, and I don't know if this is right or wrong or whatever, but the way I always approach it is what's the story that we're telling? And I try to, uh, this is, this is how my, my, my grad, I, I always use this. One of my grad teachers, a guy named Brant Pope, um, the way he always described it is he said, until you know what you want the little old lady in the third row to take away, you can't make a single decision. You have to, th you have to think from that perspective first. So I always look at the text and I read the play, and I read my lines, and I read my scenes and my moments, and I go, okay, 
what does that what is that person in the third row supposed to take away from this what are they supposed to get and the only way you know what that is is from the text because the text is what the words that that tell that story so then you create some sort of story in your mind and then all of the physical bits all of the comic moments all of the ways that you spin the words all of that comes with a an awareness of what story you're telling what you're trying to portray and and that helps guide what otherwise you know you could literally do anything and it and it, you, it could be funny or not funny or whatever but it, there's there's no there's no focus so once you've sort of made that those decisions as an actor or as a production depending on how that's how it's being done then you start, you know, narrowing in on, on moments that do that. And then that's when we do the acting. That's when we have to get inside the character and no longer think about the audience. And now you have to go, okay, so now this character is trying to achieve these things and trying to do these things and trying to, uh, you know, and what moments can come out of that that make sense with what's being said and what's being said about you and that you're saying and that you're trying to communicate with the text. And that sort of creates your track and your moment and your 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 performance and 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 then and, and it all but it all comes from the beginning which is what story are we telling and what do we want them to see and understand and take away and i think that that's sort of how i always approach it start with that and then you move inside and you figure it out but that's my approach i'm an out, outside in guy there's a lot of actors out there that are like, no, you got to start with the internal truth first. You got to find out what's the truth. You know, people at attack it different ways, but as a comic actor, as in a physical actor that I am, that's how I find. And I'm also a story guy. I mean, I've always loved stories and I want to tell stories. I don't, I'm not interested in something that doesn't tell a story. That, that's what's intriguing to me when I see something. Um, so that's why I always start with the story and then kind of go in the other direction, which is where is the text piece of it. Does that sure. make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mike, how about, how about you? Well, I mean, what I found is that with, with Shakespeare, so much of the work is done for you. That's like, true. In, in what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you know, with, with a lot of plays, you read them and then you're like, what's my subtext? What is my character actually thinking as he's saying these things? And a lot of times you'll turn to the audience and say what your subtext is. You'll say exactly what you're thinking in Shakespeare. Yeah. Almost always. Yeah. yeah. They very rarely is there something else underneath right. the line. It is the line. Yeah. And, and yeah. if there ever is, we've already set it up in a previous That's scene right. that That's you're right. going to be feeling a certain way in this situation, you yeah. know? Yeah. So just letting the words do the work and just saying them in a clear, you know, it's so funny how sometimes it's just like, Saying it clearly and loudly and distinctly and using diction. That's 90% of the work. Yeah, it's true. And it's then so I'll wear true. a cape and then, you know. But, you know and you then know. get tangled in the tape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then we're done. And then we're good. Yeah. Like a lap, I'm done. Um, yeah, you know, and then infusing that with character and intention and all those things. But so, yeah, so much of it is right there. It's like he really hands you gold, you know. Well, it's it's like uh, you're, I've, I've been noticing your... Um, your line, it's in my mind to do my master good, mm -hmm. is it has been getting consistently one of the bigger laughs. And and that's that's we're tracking with Tranio. We're enjoying what Tranio's uh you know, working through in his head. Yeah, mm -hmm. this is gonna be great. Also gonna... I do a goofy dance there. You do <laughs> <laughs> Goofy dances help. It's true. But no. But yeah. but I I, I, I think so goofy dance aside, I think uh, I, I love that Tranio speech at the end of 
that big long scene competition we, with Gremio and yeah the wooing comes before mm-hmm. it and we're left alone with this guy who's like I'm gonna take us on a journey here we go guys and I really like your uh, uh, point about getting the audience on your side because yeah. that's you know that's uh, and, and same with Grumio right at the top of Act Two he's kind of we're the audience is gonna get introduced to the torture of what's about to happen through this guy absolutely mm-hmm. um and 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 it's all it's all there. There's a reason Shakespeare leaves Tranio alone for that moment. After all this insanity, there's a reason he leaves maybe the most lucid guy in the whole play alone on stage to kind of say, "Let me just talk to you for a second. Mm-hmm. There's a reason Grumio comes out and 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 you know loses his crupper and, and <laughs> um and and Shakespeare's text gives you that. So we've seen this show develop in rehearsal now and you're about to have an audience and about to have a lot of audiences yeah. <laughs> how does how does that piece change what you do as comedic actors it's it's the getting them on our side now i think is the big one figuring out because at, at a certain point in rehearsal at a certain point rehearsing a comedy especially a comedy like this it for me, I don't know about for you guys, it becomes excruciating at some point. Mm-hmm. It becomes utterly painful because you're like, I've done this a thousand times. Maybe it's not funny. Maybe I'm not funny. What am I doing here? Why or you're, do- where you're doubting your choices totally. that you've made. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then it goes in front of an audience and uh, they may respond. And then suddenly that spark is there. Suddenly that reason why you're there uh, is kind of lit up. And I think we're all going to find moments that maybe we hadn't found in rehearsal mm-hmm. of looking out and being like, okay, I got you. Cool. I, I think we'll only flesh that out more and more with different audiences, different uh, demographics of people coming to see the show. Um, I think it's a whole new, it's a whole new beach to surf. Yeah. And, and so much of what, so much of what we do is, is on instinct and, you know, uh, we all, we've trained and we've we've like i was sort of detailing earlier we've figured out what story we want to tell we've created moments and now it's time to get out there try them out see what's working what's not working when they're not working you start analyzing am i telling the story i thought i was telling are they seeing something else is something else happening that's adjusting things is the choice that i made not the right choice for this moment. Mm-hmm. So things will shift as we as we get that direct response. And I always go to, you know, like I like I said earlier, I'm a story guy. So for me, you know, it, it absolutely I I am very well aware that bits are very fragile, comic moments. And yes, I know that if you turn your head at the beginning of the line versus the end of the line, one of them is funny, one of them is not. <laughs> um, however, I also really believe that if the audience is, uh, is in the story, that's when they laugh, mm-hmm. not when there's a funny moment on top mm-hmm. of the story. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I come back to. So when a laugh isn't working, I go, what story are they, are they getting in this moment? And it takes a little, you know, 
uh, a little bit of being inside the character and outside of the character at the same time and sort of looking at that and figuring it out. And then, and then we make adjustments and we try to figure out how to clarify that story, how to clarify that moment, how to put the head turn at the end instead of the beginning so that the comic moment works if the story is, is lined up correctly in that moment. And, you know, they are the, the most important and final component to make a play, a comic play in particular, come to life. We, we, we come to life in front of an audience because we are relying on our instinct of the decisions that we've made up to this point and in the moment going, looking at the other person on the stage, hearing that laughter, realizing something we've never thought or felt before because the audience just told us something mm -hmm. and sometimes in the moment adjusting. Yeah. And that's thrilling and exciting and you know, is how the show's become better. Yeah. The, and the audience gives us such a gift because, like Eric was saying, like the real struggle is remembering to listen for the first time every time. That gets harder and harder with every, <laughs> yeah. with every repetition of it. And here you've got people who are hearing it for the first time, at least this version of it, even if they've seen True before. They're listening to the story anew. And uh, the way they listen to it will inform so much of what we do because we're like, oh... That's the story. I remember that from day one of rehearsal. Yeah. You know, I've forgotten that. Or yeah, I've, I've forgotten, gotten off yeah. track. Or mm -hmm. Absolutely. They and they help sort clarify. of guide you. And they so, do. like, preview process is, like, sort of being guided by the audience to tell the most satisfying version of this story in the right. way that we have built it, you know? Very informative to the audience. It's funny how at this point in rehearsal processes, I've in all, all three plays I'm in right now... Uh, it's funny how there's kind of becoming this unified thing of cast looking at each other and going, that first thing we did, let's go back to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah. suddenly it's in front of an audience and you're like, oh, wait, my first instinct was yeah. the correct one. Right. I muddied it up by, by you know. Overthinking. Overthinking. Yeah. It takes an immense amount of discipline to both, both as a group of actors and as a director and as an actor to, to trust what's working in the rehearsal room. Because like, as Eric was saying, you know, the first time you do something in the room, sometimes you get a laugh, sometimes you don't um, in, the, uh, in the rehearsal room. And then usually they go away. Those laughs go away. And you have to sort of rely on what you know of the story and your instinct to sort of hold you through. And you have to have, you know, actors and directors and a team that trust that it will work or else, you know, what sometimes happens with shows is that, you know, that, that lack of trust goes away and bits get cut that shouldn't get cut or moments get, get finagled or you start readjusting things because you start doubting yourself. And there is, I agree with what Eric's saying, that first instinct is often really close. It's not yeah. always the, the answer, but it's often very close because... We're instinctual human beings, you know? We, we rely on, as long as we have the, the container with which to work, oftentimes those instincts are what help us make good choices, you know? All of what you're saying here makes me think about the, the statement that sometimes people make about comedy being the most difficult kind of theater <laughs> to do. 
do you think that do you think that's true do you find that to be true in well, your own you lives? know when it ain't working you know what <laughs> that's i mean that's true as soon <laughs> as soon true. as you go off the track of, <laughs> of what is enjoyable to an audience fun, ain't nothing less fun than yeah. that huh? I mean, it got shit. cold in here your yeah. whole head that wants true. to crawl inside your neck and you just kind of wish that you could disappear into that the so ether true. yeah that you're so doing true. a drama if people get bored you don't know you're just doing your thing up there <laughs> you're, you're too busy to be, crying yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah i mean it's I don't know that it's the hardest. I think all of it's hard, but I will say that comedic acting takes a special type, not better or worse, just a specific type of performer. Mm -hmm. And mostly that relies on precision. You know, that an actor who knows how to control their bodies and their voices and their intentions and understands what to do so that it flies out of you into the audience's experience. And, you know, that is a very particular skill. And, and again, it's not better or worse. It just takes a, a special, specific type of person to do that. Which I think they're really good at finding here. They are. So who are your comedic inspirations? Looney Tunes would be a big one. Absolutely. Um, the Theater de la Jeune Lune in Minneapolis, which is a now defunct theater company in, in Minneapolis that did uh, really crazy clowning and they were I've had a couple teachers from them and their big motto is stupider, stupider, be dumber <laughs> be stupider more stupid uh, and then the other one would be uh, Jacques Tati who's a, uh, a French filmmaker and he's got these four movies where he plays this kind of bumbling uncle who just kind of negotiates the world, and he is a absolute master at creating problems for himself, which is what yeah. great great clowns do. Yeah, I, I, a lot of the people he said. I would also add some of the uh, the classic um, classic Hollywood actors of you know the Donald O'Connors and mm-hmm. the um, you know that that sort of era. There's a, there's a great number of people that I, I you know I think are really valuable to watch and learn from and 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 then you know like i was saying at the beginning of my time here at utah shakes getting to watch some of those extraordinary performers and watch how they do it it's it's there's nothing better than do it because because when you see a movie when you see looney tunes when you see that those are very valuable but you're seeing the final product yeah. being in the room and watching them find the funny that's where you learn yeah, I was about to add Donald O'Connor to the list as well. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I mean, when I first watched Singing in the Rain when oh, I was yeah. a kid, I right? mean, it was just revelatory. Make him laugh is like a rite of passage. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. yeah. It's absolutely. like, wow, if I could ever do that, I'll be a very lucky person, I you know? know? I know. Um, yeah, and you know, those, like, even going back further, those old vaudeville dudes, oh, Abbott and Costello, absolutely. Laurel and Hardy. The Three Stooges, yep. like, you know, you can, they're all master classes, yep. you know. Wonderful. Well, I thank you for joining us here today and sharing your brilliance with us. Our and pleasure. I've, I want to see the woods brilliance and the moon someday. <laughs> I do too. I do. In fact, I think right after this, we're going to force Aaron to perform. When I want to see the whole show. Help me, podcast listeners. Help me. me I don't want to see a minute. I want to no. see like the entire three-hour three musical. Hour, yeah. You as the woods. This is exciting. <laughs> well, thank you very much, guys. Thank you, it's great sir. to have thank you. Here. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to another episode with the Play On Podcast. To hear more, go back and listen to past interviews on the festival webpage. Be on the lookout every Friday for a new episode with your favorite directors, actors, and designers from our 2015 season. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes through your computer or mobile device. Search for Utah Shakespeare Festival Play On Podcast on your favorite podcast app. You can now locate the podcast on our website by clicking on the news headline at the top of the festival, bard.org homepage. Thank you.